Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hey everybody, it's your evil near future corporate CEO, Bruiser Holden McNeely. And it's me, your walking corpse automaton, but with memories of my wife, dead or alive creep, you're coming with me, Bruiser Jake. <laughs> We're both bruisers today, I should have been a This wizard. is a bruiser heavy episode. This is episode. a bruiser heavy episode. I have to say, Jake, I love... RoboCop. I love RoboCop <laughs> almost as much as RoboCop hates creeps. <laughs> so um, to talk about that some more, uh, let's go into what we call the gush. <laughs> um, RoboCop and I have an interesting relationship. RoboCop is one of those, I think I've talked about this before, but I would say I was a little bit of like a wuss wuss as a kid when it came to like, violence and nudity and uh you know extreme anything when it comes to uh content in films right and it really wasn't until i want to say like college when i got into slasher movies that i started to find enjoyment in ultra gore and in like and even laughing at it and finding the humor in it you know what i mean and and when something's over the top violent and even like reveling in it and and making oh holden, this is like a holden you don't have to do this every episode i feel like we constantly when talking about 80s franchises specifically have to t- do like a obligatory like now spoiler alert i was four years old when this came out <laughs> and it was scary well all this to say i remember robocop was on tv i think it was like hbo and my parents were gone and i turned it on and it was like just in time to see that dude's dick get shot off <laughs> and then i immediately went nope and just turned it off i was mortified i was just absolutely petrified when that happened it was way too soon for me but then later i don't think it was until even when i was living in new york it was after college even that i finally uh, you know was convinced i think ed larson was a big proponent for the franchise uh and i was finally convinced to give the franchise another shot or at least the first film and i threw it on and i was so pleasantly surprised because i think the mindset and i think that a lot of the problems which we'll get to about why robocop how robocop went wrong the mindset was like oh this is just this over-the-top like man's man movie about a robotic cop and he's a police officer but actually 
I was so pleasantly surprised to find all this hilarious satire and then re-exploring the, the violence in the film. I actually was laughing when the guy's dick got shot off and like really thought that it was just a super fun, original, unique film. And then in doing this research, I forgot about or I didn't never realize, which is ridiculous because they're so similar, that RoboCop and Starship Troopers are like the same team, essentially, mm-hmm. which makes so much sense. I loved Starship Troopers when it first came out in the theaters. I was in high school. and that, But did you know why you loved it specifically at you, the time? Would you like to know why? Yeah, um, you best. <laughs> actually, it's what, would you like to know more? Um, yes, because it was, the reason why I loved it so much, Starship Troopers, very same reasons why I like RoboCop. It was it was a, it had a great social commentary. It had a very surprising moments of levity and humor. The ultra violence was like super over the top and fun. Co-ed locker rooms. Co-ed locker rooms, nudity, which was fun to masturbate to. <laughs> and then it also had the this playfulness that I again, I can't believe I didn't see the connection to. I loved all those fake commercials mm-hmm. and all of those things in Starship Troopers and in RoboCop upon later viewing that made those movies just so funny and playful and I love the commercials so much specifically because it does such a good job of building the world and setting out exposition without doing it in an annoying way or without being too explain or explainy, you mm-hmm. know? And, and yeah, so anyways, what a fun fucking movie RoboCop is. I just think it's so great. And even and RoboCop 2, by the way, and we, I will say this now, we are doing um, RoboCop, the whole franchise, but with a focus on the very first movie, because that really is uh, the reason for the season when it comes to RoboCop. Though I do think RoboCop 2 is actually pretty great. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's really stumbled since then. The, the tension that we have to, to kind of come to terms with is uh, RoboCop as schlocky action figure, like, uh, prototype guy. Yeah. RoboCop as, like, you know, sitting on the toy shelf next to Darth Vader and the Ninja Turtles and the Jurassic Park figures. RoboCop as just product of capitalism and RoboCop as literally one of the most perfect movies ever made. Uh Uh-huh. RoboCop as one of the most flawless amazingly executed, brilliantly creative movies of all time. Yeah. It is not schlock. It is not a cult classic. In my eyes, RoboCop is a perfect movie. Also, you've got the dad from Twin Peaks. You've got the dad (laughs) from that 70s show, thus closing the loop on the two universes. (laughs) Uh, I will say I loved that uh, I had the RoboCop action figure. Uh, RoboCop and the Ultra Police where he uh, had a team of cops and uh in, in the back he had like this little like spring-loaded i guess backpack that you used to like pop caps those like little popping caps uh-huh. and so uh you know my parents uh immediately stopped buying me the caps because it made our whole apartment smell like gunpowder but for that one beautiful afternoon i held the auto nine pistol in my imagination <laughs> well let's fucking get into it man um and to get into it, we definitely have to talk about our two key players, and that would be Edward Neumeyer and Paul Verhoeven. I refuse to uh, uh, this Michael Minor erasure that's happening right and now. And Michael Minor, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, do you have the goods on Michael Minor a little bit? Uh, Mike, uh, well, 
Newmeyer seems to be the really like the voice of the t- of the team, and and Miner is a little more quiet. Once in all the, the script was sold, uh, Newmeyer kind of was the one who was on set, the one who kind of took a more active hand. He also takes a lot of he shows up a lot in commentaries. He kind of is the more public facing figure. Michael Miner is part of the story. He followed up with this weird writing directing debut uh, for a film called. Deadly Weapon, which you could not make today, but it's about a bullied 15-year-old who finds a government super laser rifle, and he goes on a revenge spree, and then the army has to, like, stop him. Hell yeah. It's like the song Jeremy by Pearl Jam, but with more lasers. Yeah. Lasers have spoken. Edward Neumeyer studied journalism at University of Santa Cruz. Then he went to the School of Motion Picture and Television at UCLA for his bachelor's degree. And at first he started out as a production assistant on the TV show Taxi, as a proofreader for Paramount Pictures and Columbia Pictures, and also as a junior executive at Universal Pictures. And so while he was a reader at specifically Columbia, he was given at one point a stack of comic books to read for potential adaptations, which led him down the road of looking at modern-day comics for inspiration. Even cited Frank Miller, which is interesting because, of course, Frank Miller ends up co-writing the second and third Robocops. Now, um, also at the time, a little-known movie was being made called Blade Runner. Neumeier says of this, I was on a set for Blade Runner. It was hundreds of people working in the in this whole enormous set. I was just hanging around for a, uh, about a week working in the art department. At about four in the morning one night, I was sitting there and the idea of a robot cop in that environment, the location really fired up my imagination. When I asked somebody, so what's this movie about anyway? They pointed to a girl in a tutu, the actress Sean Young, and said, it's a robot movie and she's a robot. I was like, that doesn't look like a robot to me. Then they said, Harrison Ford, he's a robot too. He's chasing other robots. Uh, And so apparently that's where, I also heard a story that it was him and um, a friend walking past a movie poster and the friend was just like, yeah, it's about a guy who hunts robots. But what, and that's how he got the inspiration. But this is the quote that he said, And then he ends up wanting to pitch the idea to Hollywood execs, and he lucks out that he ends up stranded in an airplane terminal with a high-ranking exec for several hours who got it moved to the next stage. He ends up writing the first treatment in 1981 with a writing partner, though, right? Not Miner. The way the story I read was that uh, Michael Miner was friends with Ed Neumeier. And uh, they realized that they were both working on similar scripts. Yes, Michael uh, Miner, he had a movie called Super Cop, I believe, was yeah, it? Yeah, uh, Neumeier was working on Robot Cop <laughs> because Blade Runner was a cop who hunted down robots. But what if this one, the cop, was a robot who hunted humans? Oh, uh, that's pretty clever. That's interesting. And Michael Miner was working on Super Cop, which was about a cop, a human cop that got augmented by like a cyborg. He called it an appliance mm-hmm. that increased his abilities. And so they kind of combined the two ideas. Yes, and create, of course, RoboCop. But also, this RoboCop is inspired by different comic books, like we mentioned, specifically Judge Dredd is the most obvious one. Yeah, the earliest designs for RoboCop are just blatant Judge Dredd knockoffs, as well as uh, Rom the Space Knight, who was this weird robot toy developed by Mattel, who in a uh, kind of co-marketing deal with Marvel got released as a comic book who then got crossovers with other Marvel space heroes. And it's this kind of like weird gap in Marvel's history because they don't own that character. It's still technically owned by Mattel. And so even though Rom the Space Knight was hanging out with um, 
Guardians of the Galaxy and, you know, Adam Warlock and the Silver Surfer, he's kind of gone. But throughout the RoboCop movie, uh, there are several scenes where comic books can be uh, visible. Uh, the, the, yes, you see, and you see Rom. You see Rom. Uh, yeah, you see right Rom. before it's right before RoboCop, I believe, takes down his first officially his first bad guy, the Bodega guy, and the Bodega. The yeah. Bodega guy passes by a comic book rack. He sees Iron Man and Rom the Space Knight and uh, RoboCop's son while watching TJ Laser. <laughs> TJ Laser. TJ Laser uh, also has a Rom the Space Knight comic book on the floor next mm. to his toys. Gotcha, um, gotcha. But yes, that's that's a that's the huge thing that. I learned while doing this research is that we couldn't make sense. Robocop seemed so unique and is burned into our memories as kids because it was our first exposure to a ton of other influences yes. that we would later experience in life, not having realized that Robocop is an amalgam of all this cool shit that we would learn that we would. And just that basic cyborg question you always have to ask, what is humanity? What, is, you know what I mean? Like, what's the difference between once, once, once robotic elements get put into the mix? What does it mean to be human? All of those kinds of questions. But also stuff like anime and manga and Sentai shows and comic books and but like also all this. just the state of Detroit. And like, <laughs> and that's the best background for all of this that, um, and by the way, a lot of the inspiration for, the Fall of Detroit and all that stuff comes from a book called The Reckoning by David Halberstam, which is all about, it essentially looks at, what, what was it, Ford Motors in Detroit? Is it Ford in Detroit? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it compares them with, I believe, Nissan in Japan, and what the different company trajectories were, and mm -hmm. the different policies, and how different those companies acted, and how Japan was just rising to the top while Ford was just falling into a, a total dismal um, collapse. And uh, Detroit was a crazy, and also just in general, corporations became big through the 70s and were uh, he Neumeyer talks about how corporations just really like came to the forefront in the 80s they, this was the hostile takeover era this was the yes. Mitt Romney kind of era and he talks about how like Wall Street and the stock markets were, were way quieter before the 80s in the 80s they were la like big loud presences full of cocaine and parties and lavishness. He said about corporate America, I wanted to make a statement about that, about the coming of the corporate world and everything being seen as a business problem and being solved as a business problem. Whether it's schools or hospitals or education, I felt then, as I do now, that you can't apply that kind of thing to everything. And I think this film beautifully satirizes this thought. It is so funny. It is so well done. I, I just, the way the business people act... The way that they're all, even in that first meeting, the boardroom meeting, where they're all like trying to outclap each other mm. and do all this bullshit, you know what I mean? All the, the all the it, corporate ritual shit. The boardroom is populated by like all these weird lackeys who stay throughout the movie. He's just like one, like the black guy who's just constantly giving the thumbs even up. Even when they stuff. watch a man get unloaded on with like forty bullets. Oh, one of the best scenes. Somebody call a goddamn ambulance. No, no, call a paramedic. <laughs> yeah, call it. Well, somebody call a goddamn paramedic. And it's just like, dude, I think he might be dead, all right? <laughs> I'm very disappointed. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and they all are still there. Like, they would never abandon their posts, even if, even even though a giant robot monster could just, like, walk through the door and just accidentally murder another one. And that's the other thing is there's all these sly uh, sci-fi novel, sci-fi story references throughout the entire thing. The I'd buy that for a dollar uh, is... Uh, that? 
fucking fake horny old man TV show is so funny to me with the breast cake. And, that, and I'm just like, what is this that everybody just like loves this dirty yeah, old man horny? Young, but that's the thing. Horny it's boy TV show is criminal, so funny. cop, young, old, rich, poor are all like getting actively dumber watching. Yes. The like as the as their city is crumbling around them, nobody cares that much because yeah. the TV has dumb titty jokes. Yes. Um, but that is actually based on another short uh, sci-fi story called the it's actually called the marching morons by <laughs> cyril m cornbluth uh in that story it's about how a radio show is what pacifies the uh pacifies the populace in a dystopian future mm. uh where his catchphrase is i'd buy that for a quarter ha. um so in addition to all the other sci-fi references th- but what i'm trying to say is minor and Newmeyer uh are two huge nerds they are two huge nerds they have wry senses of humor and so they've created this fanboy idiocracy pastiche and it's not like it's this this kind of stuff this kind of like very uh esoteric uh script doesn't really have a chance but luckily a few years earlier james cameron made terminator the first terminator and that was a huge success uh-huh so Oddly enough, Hollywood wanted robot scripts, and these two <laughs> lucky nerds like got their thing greenlit. Because yeah, it really is. It, it, it thank you for explaining that because mm-hmm. the whole time it's definitely one of those Hollywood stories where I'm like, how did this crazy guy get this crazy director, and they got to make this movie, and no one <laughs> made them make it different. Unlike the well, next movies, because as soon as it becomes popular, of course they're like, "Oh yeah, we got to take control now. We know how how to make it good," and then and then fuck up the whole franchise. But yeah, it's just fascinating they were allowed. But I guess it's one of those kind of like I always talk about with it's that little franchise that could. It's that mm-hmm. little movie or video game or whatever, right? They probably just stayed out of their way because they're just like, whatever, make your little robot movie, you know? Well, and no, the people at Orion Pictures throughout the process were. Like I, I, some anecdote. I can't remember which interviewer told this story, but uh, you know the producer, the 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 bankrollers would come in, walk around Dallas while they were filming, and just be like, "Stop the bleeding, please, <laughs> please stop the bleeding." Nobody's gonna stop the bleeding, especially not Paul Verhoeven, our director. He definitely the, the pushed one it to guy the limit. who said okay to this script. Exactly, who almost didn't, who threw it away in the garbage at first. Um, he was born in Amsterdam in 1938 to a school teacher and a hat maker. He moved to The Hague in 1943, which is location. Oh, that seems safe. That seems uh, nice. The Hague is a nice It's a nice place. Yes, yeah, the location of German headquarters in the Netherlands during World War II. Oh, that's a bad place to be. Oh, you shouldn't be there. Very bad place to so be. So many people were trying to blow that place up. He lived near Yeah, it's a, he lived near a German military base that had rockets launching all the time and was a target for allied forces. Her parents were almost killed by the rockets. Na- the, his neighbor's house was hit with these rockets. In interviews, he talks about remembering images of violence, burning houses, dead bodies on the street, and continuous danger. And though he felt war uh, at the same time as a child was this exciting adventure, this like amazing, crazy, wild thing that was just thrilling for a kid at the same time. Probably wasn't you know too young to understand the weight of some of uh, how ugly and just awful all this, this stuff is, was. This is a super key thing. We should we should do we could do a whole episode on Verhoeven because he has mm-hmm. an amazing filmography behind him. Yes, but his weird upbringing where he was exposed to so much violence and chaos at such an early age, because like when the war was happening, he's just about four. He's like just gaining an understanding of the world around him. 
And the way he treats violence in his movies, he's at once like casual about it. It's very like cavalier and casual, but it's not like giddy, but there's still a weight to it. He still films it with a level of like seriousness and deliberateness that kind of is reflected in the fact that violence isn't a special thing to him. He was like, it's a fact of life. It is around you. It is a force of nature, but also it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> For lack but of a better. But also it's funny. <laughs> that it, it, it's, there's a lot of it. He films it exquisitely. Yes. But it's not in a way that is mocking. Like shots matter. Like uh, one of the things that's amazing in this movie, if you pay attention, is how he films all the gunfights where you can see wherever, like every shot that hits Robocop, there's a shot of the villain aiming. There's yes. a shot of, you know, it's it's the lines of sight are super clear. Everything is like happening in a very coherent fashion. He is taking, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a, okay, Commando, uh -huh. where Arnold Schwarzenegger is just like spraying two yeah, M16s yeah, yeah. in indiscriminate this, directions. This, you're right. It does feel a lot more pur purposeful and everything, everything just feels a lot, like it has a lot more weight to it. You know what I mean? Like those shots all hit with a thud. Mm -hmm. Like, when, when the, just the movements of RoboCop, just you feel the weight of RoboCop, like, like, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't, it's, it's, it's its own unique vibe with, with, with all of that. And, and the violence too. It's like the violence is just smacks you in the face every time it happens. It's, it's just, it's just like, boom, just you, you, it, it reminds me almost a little bit of the over the top violence in Tarantino films a lot. A lot of times when, very people, similar when people get shot, when people, you know, it's just this heavy, loud thing. And there's blood. And there's so much blood. Um, <laughs> I heard someone might have said this as a joke, but like they were literally running out of condoms in Dallas because they were using so many as squibs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after the liberation, going back to his uh, younger life, Paul would go with his father to the cinema to watch American films such as War of the Worlds, which he went to see 10 times. He also liked comic books, especially the Dutch comic book Dick Boss about a private detective who fights crime using jujitsu. Uh, and he drew his own comic, The Killer, which is a story about revenge. I bet it was brilliant as his <laughs> little kid private detective story. He graduated from the university with a double major in math and physics, which he never used. And he starts making short films and took classes at Netherlands Film Academy. He was ended up getting drafted into the Royal Dutch Navy, uh, uh, during which he made a they, The Netherlands had mandatory military right, service. It was, yeah, it wasn't really had, a draft. It was a, Even a PhD like engineering math physics guy couldn't get out of it. Right, exactly. But, and this happens a lot. The creatives that we end up covering who end up getting they drafted. They become like writers for the newspaper, or in this case, he becomes a documentarian for, for them and ends up making a movie... Um, uh, which ended up winning awards and then moved to uh, onto Dutch television. His uh, uh, once or once he gets out of the navy, rather, he ends up moving over to Dutch television. And his first major big success is a series called Floris. He ends up making several Dutch films, such as Turkish Delight, which got an Academy Award nom for Best Foreign Language Film in 1974. Uh, but his first big Hollywood American Hollywood production would be RoboCop. He actually no, no, did uh, make flesh one American, and blood, yeah. but Hollywood. That's why I said American Hollywood movie. Uh, 
He did make Flesh and Blood starring Rutger Hauer and all Jennifer of his Jason mo- before Lee. that all of his movies were Hauer fests. Yeah, Just everything was his- Rutger Hauer. It seemed like he was they they had a really tight relationship. Um, I had to go back and double check that he didn't direct Lady Hawk. That's how much ah. Rutger Hauer was a figure in his early films. So for when it comes to this movie, he apparently throws the script away in disgust upon his first skim through of it. But then his wife ends up pulling it out of the garbage, actually reading it, and convinces him it has more substance than he believed so he ends up getting attached to the project this weird it seems so such a random connection and collaboration that is just ends up being making such a great great film so it's so key to the success of robocop as a piece of work that it's this very irreverent uh script full of like cutaway gags and satire because like yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Verhoeven was uh, was an American and was kind of like painting his like vision of what America was. Yes, but, which I think works for the movie. But this was like all the jokes are like very snide, like nerdy, like normies are doing like this, but like I'm better than this. The outsider perspective of RoboCop really is the work of the screenwriters. It's their jokes. Even the idea of doing the commercials and stuff are in the original script. And Neumeier just says that Verhoeven was really able to just push everything that they put on paper just a little bit further. Just just make it a little bit funnier, a little bit more violent, a little bit, but but always respected what was on the page and was not trying to alter what was there. It's and like I, that's if Mad, why it it's, so well. It's like if... Um, <laughs> It's like if uh, Francis Ford Coppola got to direct something written by the writers of Mad Magazine. You know what uh-huh, I mean? Uh-huh. That level of artistry yeah. with that level of satire yes. co-mingling perfectly. Uh, according to Verhoeven, the only scene, the only adjustment he made to the script was that he added the scene with the uh, terrible rapists yeah. <laughs> shooting the dick off. <laughs> was shooting the, yeah, he did the dick off. He was the dick off. That's amazing. Can we talk about the dick off Totally unnecessary, quick? by the way. <laughs> no, it's super funny. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's very funny. It's super funny. Especially afterwards, she's like, thank you. He's just like, please contact a rape counselor. (laughs) You have been through emotional trauma. Please contact a rape crisis center. Uh, The... The rapists are so dumb. Yeah, <laughs> like, I like. I, I mean, all the criminals, even even the supposedly like like the final criminals, they're all like act like complete idiots. Oh yeah, okay. That was one other thing I wanted to talk about is this idea seemingly comes out of nowhere. Like, what is this idea? Like, it's so unique. But really, this was Newmeyer and Miner's uh, reaction to the increasing escalation of the lone cop movie, which had become so popular during the time. Like. The, the rise of crime in the 70s and 80s yes. was basically the American id recalibrated that in the form of uh, basically Death Wish and right. Dirty Harry. And both of those movies are kind of like somber like examinations of a man pushed to its limits. But by 1986, when this movie came out, like Dirty Harry was fighting like super criminals with like robot cars, right. uh, you know, uh, Bronson was literally like mounting machine guns on top of like New York City tenements. It's the like the exact weird gang members that you see in RoboCop are a hundred percent out of the same playbook of like the Mohawk switchblade. Like, hey, I'm gonna get you. I hate decency. <laughs> like, uh-huh. I love drugs and stabbing and raping old ladies. They're just ridiculous caricatures, and and they're very comic booky as well. That the marriage between the two. Like, you, these are straight out of com- comic book. Uh, I feel like RoboCop is almost the first great uh, comic book superhero movie if it weren't for, like, well, I mean, obviously you had Superman and stuff before that, but 
but of the new era especially. Um, the idea that... Even uh, though it wasn't actually based on the comic book. That uh, film was turning the uh, lone cop into a superhero already, yeah. and so they just took it the one click further to just fuck it. He's a superhero. Well, let's talk about the building of that superhero. Um, so oh, a couple of f- uh, familiar name coming up. Abs- a few, multiple familiar names, I feel like, throughout this whole, this is such a cool team that, that made this movie. So at first, uh, Rutger Hauer, of course, and Michael Ironside were up for the role and ends up going to Peter Weller. You might know him as Buckaroo, Buckaroo Bonsai from the amazing film Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. If you haven't seen it yet, you need to fucking see this movie, okay? It's a lot of fun. And get really high with your friends and watch this movie, please. All right, so stop the podcast, make plans with your friends, quit your job, and go see Buckaroo Bonsai, okay? I'm not going to tell you this again, okay? Uh, you should finish listening to the podcast. Maybe uh, go to Patreon. Uh, maybe go to the Facebook page. Like, really engage with our brand before you go full bonsai. Fuck it. Stop ever listening or helping it all with the podcast. <laughs> make friends. Make plans with your friends. All right. So, <laughs> so, anyways, apparently Weller got the role, though, because he could express more with his lower face. And also, he was just small enough to fit the suit. That's the key. Is <laughs> Which, um, at the time, was modeled on hockey gear. <laughs> Well, they originally wanted uh, the, their dream casting was Schwarzenegger. Once again, yeah. going for this super cop kind of archetype. Of course. And it was up to the maker of the suit. So let's say his name, Rob Botin. Yes. Is that how you pronounce it? Rob Botin? I just Botin? said Botin. But... Uh, I've, I've heard, I heard, I think there's a little spice on that. I'm going to be a southern piece of shit and just say Rob Botin. Uh, was <laughs> like said, you have to stop seeing these like bulky dudes because. Uh, it's the same, you know, how Doug Smith and all the uh, Hellboy and uh, and Shape of Water shit. Uh-huh. It's you need a skinny guy, yeah. to put the suit on because then it looks like an actual person instead of because any additional mass will make you look it'll like just a, look huge. It'll yeah, look yeah. like a With dumb the guy in a suit. Extra stuff of the, the that is the suit. And um, so uh, Peter Weller uh, was a trained actor. He had a good jawline. And he was a marathon runner, so he was a slender dude. Thin guy. And uh, so Rob Botten, as you said, a quick introduction for him. We've talked about him before. I'm not going to spend too much time on his biography, but I will just say he had just come off of working on The Thing. Uh, When he was a kid, he was obsessed with old horror movies and magazines based off of them, kind of like early versions of Fangoria. And at 14, he sent a bunch of illustrations to makeup effects artist Rick Baker, who uh, did An American Werewolf in London, among many other things. He's like this amazing... Makeup effects artist. Patron saint of Practical Monster. And Rick Baker hires him and gives him his start. So so here he is working on this just off of the thing, just off of one of the greatest ex- uh, examples of uh, special effect makeup stuff in a movie in general ever. And if you remember the episode we did on uh, on John Carpenter's The Thing, uh, the process nearly killed him super hard. Yeah, it did. Um, so for this, he has a budget of $1 million, and he ends up making a total of six suits, three that are intact and three that have damage. Botten said about the suit design, it's meant to look very speedy and aerodynamic. All the lines are measured to go on a slant. Forward, forward, forward. All the lines were geometric and complement every shape of the bot on the body from all angles. When Verhoeven came on the project, he requested numerous design changes, additions to the suit, which looked more like machine than man-like. Uh, specifically, Verhoeven had become obsessed with Japanese mecha comics. Ah, he had gotten a hold of a bunch of like Gundam and like Mazinger shit, and so That's he was awesome. like really pushing for like huge shoulder pauldrons and big boxy designs. And it had to be up, to, and it was up to Botin, 
who, uh, as part of his process, every time they wanted to redesign the suit, he would make a new six-foot-tall figure completely out of clay and have to point and explain why all the shit he wants is not going to work with a person inside of it. Button said, I've never done so many conceptual drawings for a director in my entire life, changing it and changing it and changing it. And another thing um, I will say about the suit that I really love that I didn't realize until just before coming in here essentially was that he really also wanted to make it look like a Detroit muscle car at the same time, the RoboCop design. And I think you see that in the design, just this big bulky steel that just, you you get a sense of definitely the, the automotive industry that is so associated with Detroit in some of that design. But also on top of that, there's another layer where with the helmet, it's kind of smooth and sleek. And that kind of, that's like basically a brawn like dust buster. Like, uh, RoboCop looks like a corporate product as well as yeah. a honed, like, military weapon. Yep. Yeah, totally. It's that kind of weird mix of uh, commercial and death <laughs> is one of the factors that makes his, makes him stand out. So it took 10 months of prep before the suit was complete. Peter Weller ends up hiring the head of the movement department at Juilliard at the time. <laughs> oh, this is the funniest Moni Yakum. Please, to, please draw this out. To help him with movements while in the suit. Well, wait, well, what do you have? I, I feel like I'm not going to do this justice now. So Moni Yakum, the time, I don't know if he is anymore, but at one point he was the head of the movement department at Juilliard. Right. This is the mime's mime. And uh, Peter Weller uh, describes... Training for months in Central Park uh, with, like, heavy hockey pads on, <laughs> on how he specifically is going to express the existence of a man stuck between two worlds, both robotic yet yearning for humanity to break three. He described the movements as bird-like with snake. Snake-like, I saw yeah, as well. Like, he had this whole philosophy, this, you know, this actor's actor training with the single greatest mind teacher in the in New York City. And then they get into the actual suit. And nothing works. It is <laughs> way bulky. They had to, like, it took apparently 11 hours for the first time, for once the suit showed up, on the day of filming. So they couldn't even practice. Exactly. The problem was the suit was behind schedule. So that's why he, Weller never really got a chance to experience the suit until day of shooting. And so after 11 hours of getting it on... Uh, they had to, like, shave down the plastic bits to get him to fit into it. He could, like, barely move. And then he just is having a freakout. He is having a total freakout because he just did all these months of work. Yeah. And it is worthless. This yeah. fucking bulky, blocky thing cannot move in any axis. The first shot, literally the first shot they filmed with him in the suit is when he catches the patrol car keys. Uh -huh. So imagine you are uncomfortable. You have just thrown away months of work. And you can't see anything in this visor, so you're just stuck in front of a car, like, failing to catch car keys with your gross plastic rubber mitts. <laughs> and he almost threatens to, like, shut down production. He is, like, ready to quit. And Verhoeven has to talk him off the ledge. Uh, they bring in Moni. He flies over, and they do, like, a kind of marathon, like, retraining to slower, figure out how to... Slower, more deliberate movements. They yeah. had to go back to the drawing board and at, and, and fix, too. And um, so that's what saved the movie was emergency mime lessons. Weller told Roger Ebert in an interview that he lost three pounds a day from sweat loss. 
in the suit filming in 100 degree temperatures. There was 100. A, this was Dallas in, in the middle of summer. 130 degrees at its worst. By the way, we haven't gotten to filming yet, but I love that like none of RoboCop pretty much is actually filmed in Detroit, which is so fucking funny, which would have like actually maybe helped them out a little bit to a broader movie production there, but of course they ended up filming in Dallas and uh Houston and Canada and like it's like never Detroit. Um, well, it's, you know, uh they had Texas Instruments and you know, there was this big tech boom and apparently it's this like weird thing where architects will go nuts when it's time to make something in Dallas because there's no mountains, there's no nature, it's just your building will define the skyline. Yeah. So at the time, Dallas had just all these like just crazy futuristic. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, oh, by the way, there was a guy in hand with electric fans and whatnot to cool uh, Weller, and it was a complete nightmare. They had to, uh, they had a wielder, uh, a welder rather, in Texas modify a Beretta 93R is the gun, but he made it bigger and to, in order to be more proportional. I, do, I and that gun really does. It's like you see that it's gun, you're like, yeah, it's such a classically huge, over the top American ass. <laughs> fucking thing it was originally supposed to be the uh, desert eagle you know that big honking like fucking uh, magnum gun that you see in every video game yeah uh because they figured because it was a new at the time so like anytime there's a new cool crazy gun like every movie has to use it right uh but unfortunately in the hands of robocop it just looked like a normal gun <laughs> just like a normal size gun uh you can actually find uh pictures of the beretta what's it called Breda 93R. 93R. And it looks gnarly. It has like yeah. this little foregrip. Like, it's crazy. It's the idea that you're supposed to actually hold it in your hand and like fire off burst rounds with this pistol is nuts. Also, the holster was its own situation. It had to be operated by techs off screen pulling cables to open it up to have the gun placed in it. And that's the holster that's like essentially just his upper thigh oh, opening it's so up. Cool. It's so cool. That's probably the coolest thing about Robocop is the is the gun <laughs> popping out of his leg. You know, the whole the whole vibe. It's it's just perfect. Hello, creeps. I have a gun in my leg. <laughs> Check it out. Check out this cool gun leg. Hey, everybody. Holden here. It is time for spring cleaning. And Quip's got an easy way to start. With your brushing habits. Just two minutes twice a day can help pave the way to a healthier mouth and mind. And now the whole family can get refreshed with Quip with the new Kids Quip. It has the same two-minute timer and guiding pulses as our original version with no childish gimmicks so they can brush just like a grown-up. It's just tweaked for size-down mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use. And they're proud to use Quip. Help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. Also, if you're like me, you've been turned off in the past by other bulkier vibrating toothbrushes, but Quip boasts no wires or a clunky charger, and it runs for three months on a single charge. I'm telling you, it's true. It also has a multi-use cover that works as a stand, mounts to mirrors, and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. I travel with my Quip all the time. And I was actually talking with Jackie from Page 7 about how much we truly love our Quip toothbrushes the other day, and one of the big reasons is that we never remember to get new brushes brushes on time, but with Quip, that whole problem is eliminated. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, so you never forget to get a refresh and stay committed to your oral health. That's why I love Quip, and why over 1 million happy, healthy mouths do too. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com wizard right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash wizard. Have a good one, y'all. 
So, as you said, filming took place over three months in Dallas. Uh, they ended up filming his death um, after, uh, 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 like, a few months later. He had to fight really hard, I believe, to get that. No, uh, they just ran out of budget. They just yeah. ran out of budget. They had to convince them to give him a little bit more so we could film the death. They just showed up. With, Which is iconic. They just came back to, to Orion and was like, here's the movie. And Orion was like, wait, where's the scene where he dies? They're like, oh, we ran out of money. It's a shame. Guess we won't have it. And they were like... <laughs> <laughs> go and I mean, I will say, especially the director's cut of that scene is pretty iconic. is is very memorable, a very memorable part of the movie. Can we get to Verhoeven's personal mythology about this movie? Sure. So it starts like kind of casually, but then by the more you see it, the more it's just absolutely true. Verhoeven refers to RoboCop as the American Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And the way he films totally. the death, so so like agonizing you know murphy is writhing in pain he is screaming and the fact that the way the literally the first thing that happens is his hand gets blown off like the nail goes through the palm you know he's reborn he is he comes back days later and he's changed something is different uh verhoeven literally points to scripture within the uh gospels that jesus after resurrection is very like he doesn't speak a lot when he's back. He says very like utilitarian phrases in the Gospels once he comes back. Just <laughs> the same way that RoboCop is just less human after having gone through the transformation. And if that doesn't nail it, in the final battle with uh, Boddicker, uh, he literally walks across, walks across water yeah. and is stabbed with a spear. Uh-huh. Like it's fucking Jesus. RoboCop <laughs> is Jesus. <laughs> RoboCop is Jesus, kids. I love it. Uh, so let's talk about some of the visual effects because this is some again we're going to name some more names we've talked about in in previous episodes because this is such a, a wildly just an amazing collaboration of people it, it really is incredible like I don't know how they got all these people to sign on to do this movie so the stop motion was uh, that was heavily used in the film especially with the ED two hundred nine was designed the the actual um, like models and things were designed by Craig Hayes. He did work on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Jurassic Park, Starship Troopers, and they were animated by Phil Tippett, which we've talked about so many times on this on this show. You Undisputed pro- God King of stop motion. You would also uh, also the the meme, the dinosaur supervisor meme with uh, that's him. Um, uh, he did yeah Star Wars, Jurassic Park, and yeah, I mean it's absolutely incredible the work they did. This is also, by the way. Uh, a bit of um, almost an academic piece because it really is the final, one of the final uh, bastions of stop motion before we move into full CGI with Jurassic Park, which, you know, he ends up working on, right? So so this really is one of the final relics, especially RoboCop 2, one of the final relics of, of stop motion as it was used back in those times before CGI took over. Of course, you have plenty of stop motion today in certain realms like Wes Anderson animated films, <laughs> but it's not the same, right? Like uh, if you needed an effect, like a big crazy robot, mm-hmm. nowadays it's all CGI. Back then, you were going to go to Phil Tippett. It really highlights both the strengths. The movie highlights the strengths and the weaknesses of stop motion because Ed 209 is animated Brilliant. I love uh, N209. So the, much the, the look of it and everything. And the- so much personality is given from the way it wiggles its toes, like kind of nervously when it takes steps or the tries. Moment, the moment on the stairs, especially. The stairs is amazing. And it almost kind of helps 
uh, it's one of the rare instances where the stop motion jankiness, that kind of alien, kind of not quite right look of stop it motion. It feels good. It, it kind of, yeah, it complements Ed 209's glitchy, kind of not finished nature. Yep. It also highlights the weakness of stop motion when Dick Jones flies through the window and this weird puppet that man is That was so unbelievable. How did they approve that? That was awful. <laughs> it's really That's not bad. stop motion. That was bad green screen, if no, nothing else. No, you look at that clip and like it's, His it's fucking a marionette. His arms are so long. <laughs> So and weird. so weirdly shaped. It it's, is so it Maybe is they were trying bizarre. for like a foreshortening effect and maybe they thought that like the Making weird, the arms longer would like, like look better, but it is perspective. It is hilarious. It turns looking. into a fucking bald Pinocchio. He looks like a weird monster it's falling. So bad. But yeah, within every scene with Ed 209, there is so much personality, and that's all Tippet just like doing his best because an animator is an actor, is a producer, is a you know a photographer is a lighter. Like so many skills are involved in the work of stop motion animation. And so like the Ed 209 would not be as memorable if a less talented animator was on a hundred percent. And then the, the robot monster in uh, what the cane robot in Robocop two, which we'll get to is an even more profound <laughs> work in stop. Mo- it's like, uh, he calls it literally the most complex uh, stop motion like thing that he's ever done um, was that Kane robot. But anyways, I have a better quote than what I just said, but we'll get to that. Uh, also, um, Botten did do uh, the makeup on the scene where Emil the henchman drives into the toxic waste and his flesh melts, which just feels so trauma-y. And I was just like, I literally... It I've was filmed after to- Toxic Avenger had come out at this point. I, so the trope of toxic waste as instant mutagen. I, I've seen this movie multiple times but even watching it last night again I laughed out loud during that sequence and and like with this whole crazy hand that sequence would have terrified me as a kid uh, but it it was so funny when he's just walking oh help me he's just like get get lost or whatever don't touch me (laughs) don't touch me and I'm just like I don't know why it's Uh, so funny but it is the the scene is known as the melting man scene within Robocop fandom Mm -hmm. Um, it is uh, Botine had worked on a film called like The Man Who Melts or something, so he used a lot of that expertise. Um, God, it's so good. The it's idea so out of nowhere, like it's completely you're not unneeded. ready for it. Yeah, you're just like, what is this? It adds a whole layer of sci-fi weirdness yeah. that you were not ready for. Right? They did that so much in '80s movies. I feel like they'll just add some crazy mm-hmm. thing, like a guy melting on toxic waste that just feels completely even in a RoboCop movie out of place, um, but even makes it pushes even further again into that comic book vibe the, into uh, the into that whole into that whole playful ridiculous over the top vibe and the uh, liquid guts when he gets hit by the car was actually uh, several days worth of craft services left over that they boiled in a big pot together to make a brown sludge mm-hmm that's fun. Yeah, just a hot bag of sludge. Oh, that <laughs> part is so great. The head rolls over the roof of the car like, oh, it's so nasty. And the uh, I also brown sludge also reminds me of the part where they're like, look, this is what he eats, and it's like this fucking poop uh, yeah. juice. It just looks so gross. Um, with the, the, the what they feed the uh, RoboCop to live, um, <laughs> tastes like baby food. Um, so Verhoeven um, has to submit 11 cuts of the film before the MPAA would finally give it an R rating instead of an X. The most altered scene was that of Murphy's death. I'm pretty, I'm almost certain I saw the director's cut last night because mm-hmm. it just had all of that crazy over the top stuff with with Murphy's 
different uh the different shots of Murphy getting murdered and and just everything was the in it I I have a feeling and it is really great I do appreciate the director's cut more um I the, the more violence the better in my oh, opinion can I uh hit on uh the music for a second sure so the soundtrack was done by uh a guy named Basil Poldoris uh he's his other big score was uh, Conan the Barbarian. Yes. And so he got this like kind of uh, uh, reputation for doing action scores, even though he wasn't really a fan of it. He worked. I mean, he studied at uh, university USC or what? University this? of South Carolina. No, no, no. I mean, Southern California, Southern California with, uh, you know, the entire like elite squad that included like George Lucas and all the other crazy, like super uh, movie people. Uh, but one of the, I just want to get this out of the way. Um, it is an amazing soundtrack. Yeah. It is a truly great soundtrack. Besides just Robocop's March, which, you know, that dun 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 dun. Um, some of the amazing tracks, the, the key game, the key motif that runs throughout the entire movie is how uh, Basil uses uh, synths as well as an orchestral score. So it creates this kind of actual tension between artificial and human. Um, some of the tracks that really stand out are Murphy's Dream which kind of plays over while he's like walking around his house and like, uh, you know, kind of getting vit flashbacks of his family. And uh, this is amazing. I, Mary, you're going to have to play a bit of this. Looking for me, the track on the soundtrack, Looking for Me, kind of plays up everything he's doing within this soundtrack of just the synths and the orchestra and the mixture of like noise and triumph that's happening. Just, just play like a nice chunk of that right now. So good. Like, add this to your running mix, because it will get you hyped. <laughs> so the film ends up uh, opening at number one, surprising everybody, with a $8 million uh, gross over that weekend. And it beat out, get this, it beats out Full Metal Jacket and <laughs> Superman 4, which is kind of incredible. Like, Stanley Kubrick's <laughs> Full Metal Jacket and the fourth installment of the Superman franchise well that's less of a tragedy if you've seen superman no totally but you would just think that like the big new superman movie would beat out like this movie about a fucking robotic police officer no it makes sense like what superhero more reflects where the 80s were at this point absolutely um and so then we move on to robocop 2 which i also really like because it is um it's not as strong as the first one but it, it almost it, it, it strives to be funny, almost funny, like more into the comedy. It's so over the top. It's so ridiculous. It, it continues to, to harness what made. I mean, fuck, it's directed by the guy who directed Empire Strikes Back, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, it's a good it's a good movie. And I definitely uh, recommend it. Definitely don't watch three, but but watch two. It's really strong. It was written by Frank Miller and Waylon Green. Yes, that Frank Miller, the comic book writer who gave us Ronin, Daredevil, Dark Knight Returns, Sin City, um, 300. He also wrote uh, the very bad RoboCop 3 film, but apparently 
He had an awful time working on both of these movies. Miller said there was a lot of interference in the writing process. It wasn't ideal. After working on the two RoboCop movies, I really thought that was it for me in the business of film. Uh, he would later write the comic book RoboCop versus the Terminator. Uh, then you have Waylon Green, who is a documentary director, including um, which which includes the documentary with a satirical sci-fi horror twist about the battle for survival between humans and insects called The Hellstrom Chronicle that won an Oscar for Best Doc in 1972. He also wrote The Wild Bunch and that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Eraser, uh, that's kind of forgettable, but still sort of a lot of fun. Among- Is that the one where he snaps an alligator's neck and then goes, your luggage? I'm pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually it. I, I enjoyed it. Er- I remember enjoying Eraser back in the day. Uh, he is also, by the way, a little fun trivia. Uh, Waylon Green is the guy who had a centipede crawl on his face that you can see in the creepy tunnel scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Not that fucking bizarre? And apparently Miller's script was just deemed unfilmable. So they brought in Green uh, to soften it up. And, and this is At where... At least he kept the, got to keep the over-the-top samurai bullshit. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of over-the-top samurai bullshit in it. Also, though, this is where we we just immediately run into issues with the studio not understanding what they have and also um, misattributing a little bit of what they have to certain other things in, in the sense of – and I don't know how to solve this problem at the same time. This is a difficult problem, a precedent set by an, a, just immediately an R-rated, almost X-rated – over ultra violent comedy film starring a beloved children's toy right like (laughs) and cartoon star and cartoon star on its face you look at robocop and you think oh this was made by mattel to sell toys but it absolutely was not this is this satirical look at uh, uh near future detroit it's just it's all this shit right it's dirty harry meets idiocracy meets uh meets comic books meets jesus meets, yeah meets jesus meets judge dread so um there are these elements about it that i totally get are made for kids but it's fundamentally opposed to that because it's also so not made for kids and the studio just has no idea what to do about it and i guess if you if you were to tell me in hindsight i would have said just stick to maybe do like what Ghostbusters did, like give them the kids' cartoons that mm-hmm. the kids can watch until they're old enough for RoboCop. But honestly, RoboCop should stay this ultra-violent satire. And honest, at the same time, how much can you really do with the franchise? And, and like, because it has such a specific message and because it has such a specific look at the world, I think there are a lot of things you could do with it. But it's tough. It really feels like they had something they needed to say with the first movie. I mean, that the, it, that be, gets convoluted as the as the franchise goes in on the first about mo- corporate America. Yeah, the first movie they it this is Verhoeven's like favorite magic trick is when it ends on what looks like a happy ending, but then you realize, oh no, the bad guys totally won. Uh huh. <laughs> Where like you know, uh, hey son, what's your name? And he's like. Murphy and everyone's like yay RoboCop but then you're like they're still gonna build Delta City they're still gonna be like yeah. a slave class intensity of, of ununionized workers yeah like old Detroit is gonna get paved over yeah like, that corporation didn't get destroyed yeah. or yeah. anything OCP did a good job yeah they win. Yeah, it's it, exactly. Clarence Boddicker killed 33 cops. <laughs> but the film does do a lot of fun shit. And I think the funnest shit is just having uh, RoboCop 2 be literally a character in the movie that is his <laughs> essentially what who he is being. They did call him RoboCop 2. Who's being, you know, he's being pitted against. And it has such a comment to make about the movie industry and making sequels because the whole 
plot point with RoboCop 2 is that it is rushed into production and therefore it ends up being a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a funny statement to make. Um, that opening, that montage of all the failed RoboCops is, and how they all destroy themselves or go wrong is very entertaining. My second favorite thing about RoboCop 2 is the fact that just on its premise alone, it's it's amazing. And then the fact that it came true is triply, quadruply amazing. But the whole premise for RoboCop 2 is that Detroit has to file for bankruptcy, which actually happened in 2013. <laughs> uh, it was the largest municipal bankruptcy filing in U.S. history, estimated at 18 to 20 billion dollars as it was the largest city by population to ever file for bankruptcy and it it's it's just it's just incredible and and that in general is such a funny idea Detroit as a character in the movie is so funny to me and the fact that they even almost had a RoboCop statue like at like Rocky style did they actually get the RoboCop uh, statue it's a very complicated story it's one of the earliest successes of like Kickstarter Indiegogo uh-huh uh, they got the funding uh, it got so much funding that uh, they increased the scale of the project. It was supposed to be just like a six foot tall thing that where they were literally going to scan an action figure and 3D print it. But then they're going to make a 10 foot tall actual brass sculpture. The uh, Detroit based artist who they uh, signed on to make the thing was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, then there was issues with where it would be planted. Uh, right now, the well, because the funniest thing to me is the fact that they're like. Putting up a statue that is a testament to how horrible Detroit is. Uh, the, the whole point of RoboCop is that, like, he exists in this awful dystopian crime-ridden Detroit. As of 2018, they <laughs> finalized a deal with the Detroit Science Museum to have a place to put up the robot. And it is, as I believe it is not up yet. Uh, a weird thing. Thank you, by the way, because I did not have that stuff down. So that is awesome. That also, you followed up on that. Uh, they tried to introduce like robot drone uh, security officers uh, in D.C. and uh, immediately homeless people threw it into a fountain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, the movie does, though, weirdly retcon the fact that Robocop totally regains his humanity at the end of the first film uh, and just has him going back to being a monotone, totally robotic with the mask and everything. Right. So two months before filming, for whatever reason, probably because Newmeyer just was bucking back too much at the studio execs who were trying to make it more child, more kitty and everything. They end up replacing Newmeyer with Irvin Kirshner who was the director of The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, he talks like Kermit the Frog, is yes. a very capable director. And uh, he's also known as that guy who can come in uh, on an already established world and character and give it that sequel that's just going to knock it out of the park, right? That's why I'm sure they tapped him for this. Um, he ends up, of course, uh, being George. He was George Lucas's professor at University of uh, Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. And that's how he ended up getting tapped for Empire Strikes Back, which really blew his career wide open. He was already making films before that, but that obviously put him on another level. Um, and he's known specifically for his strong character development in films. Um, the filming took place mostly in Houston. So, again, we're not filming in Detroit. Tippett Studios does the special effects again, helmed by Phil Tippett. And uh, he referred to, this is the quote, he referred to this, the Kane robot, by the way, look up this robot in action. It's incredibly detailed. It's very, very complex. All of the movements and everything. He referred to the Kane robot as probably the most elaborate stop motion puppet that has ever been made. And apparently it was Craig Hayes who created the robot. Uh, and he was upset because all these model kits came out of the e of the ED-209. Um, there were, I guess he was mad because they were profiting off of his hard work. So he wanted to make something so complex 
so impossible to reproduce that no one in their right mind would try it, uh, as Tippett was quoted to say. It was one of the final, final uh, motion pictures before CGI took over, as I said before, uh, to have stop motion. It is a relic of stop motion in cinema. Definitely check out even just the scenes with the Kane robot. It's pretty incredible. And that movie was released in June of 1990, and then RoboCop started sucking for, well, kind of up until now. So we'll uh, give you a good <laughs> overview of how... And I really do think... Whoa, whoa, whoa. At least there was good Nintendo Entertainment System... Oh, no, they all suck. No, no, I will say the first game that was developed from RoboCop, it was published, developed and published by Data East. They were huge dur- during the advent of arcades in the early 80s. They did Burger Time and Bad Dudes. They did they're, the, they're the up first there ever with fighters, Konami Karate Konami and Champ. Capcom as uh, penult- you know, uh, premier Japanese arcade uh, video game developers. And if, you're, and if you're ever in a barcade with a RoboCop machine, uh, with a RoboCop cabinet, go play it. It is super fun. It's a really, really strong... Uh, Strong, strong arcade game. It's a hybrid of a beat 'em up mixed with running guns. It's actually fantastic. Um, every other game was. Do you have Mame set up? You should probably do a stream. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to. Do that. I don't have that set up. I should should get that set up. Uh, and and it did come to home computers and consoles later. But really, it is about that arcade version. Is great. Um, there was also a RoboCop two and three that came out after the respective movies. That was done by Ocean Software. And unless. Uh, fellow listener, you would like to correct me on this. I'm pretty sure both of them were not that great. They came uh, out on Game Boy and ES, SNES. This was is all this that is the time. sole shining light within uh, the RoboCop home console games. Uh, if you can uh, find the opening start screen theme song to RoboCop Three, it's done by like legendary chiptunes guy Jerome Tell, and it fucking slaps. <laughs> it is a fucking banger. It is amazing. There was also a RoboCop versus Terminator game that I believe was not that great, and a weirdly enough a subpar first-person shooter for Xbox, PS2, and GameCube that came out in 03 randomly as fuck. I don't know why they even did it, but anyways, um, going back to RoboCop three again, it was written by Frank Miller. Miller said uh, this about uh, about it. I learned the same lesson. Don't be the writer. The director's got the power. The screenplay is a fire hydrant, and there's a row of dogs around the block waiting for it. Uh, as that, the guy who directed The Spirit, I'd get off that horse real fast, <laughs> Frank Miller. But I will say this. Uh, that goes completely against why RoboCop was so great, because we just talked about how it was just, you just need people that are going to respect your script and, and give elevate your script it. and elevate it. And obviously he was in a situation where that was not going to happen. Um, they used he actually used a lot of ideas that were discarded from his original screenplay, and uh, I think for two he brought back a bunch of stuff. And then it was directed by Fred Decker. He got his big break when a 15-page treatment of his was expanded into a full screenplay, and that would end up being the horror comedy film House, which I really need to watch. Oh. And by the way, House and Houseu totally completely separate right do they have anything in common i don't house is the one that i see like the ironic t-shirts of the japanese crazy ass again it's i think it's kind of a horror comedy so i'm like is there just randomly a horror comedy film in both japan and america both called house that are just completely separate entities that have nothing in common with each other that's Maybe we'll for have to a later episode. Episode. yeah exactly he went on to write and direct Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad. Wolfman's got nards. It's going to be a very like desperate week when we end up doing Monster Squad. I loved Monster Squad as I a kid. I know you though. loved Monster Squad. I loved Monster Squad as a kid. Uh, so many people did not return for this. This is that old, same old story about 
uh, just just beating the dead RoboCop horse, just not knowing what to do with the franchise and completely mishandling it. Of course, so many people didn't return. Peter Weller was doing Cronenberg's Naked Lunch at the time. He didn't come back. He was replaced with Robert John Burke, who, weirdly enough, just plays a lot of cops in movies and TV. He was most recently Chief Bridges in Black Klansman. To just give you an example, if you look, all of his character names in his bio are like Officer This, Sergeant This, Lieutenant This. Um, he's got cop face. What are he's you just do? got that cop face. And he had to wear the same suit from RoboCop 2, even though he was taller than Weller. So apparently it just immensely hurt him to wear it. <laughs> Uh, it's a lot of foam rubber stretching against bone. And, of course, Orion Pictures wanting to get that cash cow uh, out of, you know, uh, that that kid toy cash cow rockin'. Uh, Orion ends up forcing a bunch of violence out of the script and making it more of a kid. So, uh, so uh, that's, RoboCop 3. That's a kid sidekick. There's... Yeah, yeah. Robo- RoboCop 3 really is just a clear indication of when a studio is completely confused as to what to do with a franchise. Like it's not quite a kid's movie. It's not quite an action movie or, a, or a, you know, it doesn't have the violent. It, it just, it's not made for anybody. It's just, it's just this middle of the road junk fest. It has a 3% on rotten tomatoes. It ended up grossing $10 million worldwide with a budget of 22 million dollars yeah but that like one poster of him with the jetpack is like burned into my head because it was on the back of every comic book i owned <laughs> uh so then there's some robocop on tv which i will briefly talk about because it's none of it's really that um important i think to the legacy of robocop there is robocop the animated series it was produced by marvel productions in 1988 it, it looks like literally every early yeah. 90s cartoon it, it might looks as well exactly be G. like joe. the real ghostbusters like looks it, like real ghostbusters gi joe, G. joe it all looks, of it it's well that's because it was animated by acom productions the uh which stands for animation korea movie which is a studio in south korea that did uh, over 200 episodes of The Simpsons, as well as X-Men, Tiny Toon Adventures, and Batman the Animated Series, and Transformers, and like every other com- uh, cartoon that looked the same during that time. And uh, yeah, they just made it more of a kid-friendly thing. They replaced the bullets with laser weapons, yada, 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 but obviously it was very short-lived. Then you've got, in uh, about a decade later in 1998, uh, RoboCop Alpha Commando, which is a series that ran for 40 episodes. Which looks like every cartoon from the late 90s. Yes. It's kind of uncanny. It's kind of amazing. It's set in the year like, 2030. It's it, like the shittiest episode of Batman Beyond is yeah, what it, is the aesthetic. Totally, 100%. Uh, yeah, it's set in the year 2030. RoboCop is reactivated after five years of being offline. Uh, had a lot. Weirdly enough, it had a lot of the same writers from the first animated series. And now he's, like, just Inspector Gadget, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got roller skates popping out of him. He's got a parachute. In, I, I didn't watch an episode. I just saw the opening theme. <laughs> and he's, like, smashing stuff and being cool and strong and has a jetpack. And then they really want you to know he's got cool rollerblades that can pop out of his shoes. So then there's the live action. Uh, I can't believe they got 40 episodes, by the way. That's amazing. So And then there's the live First action First run syndication, series. man. Got to run something. So RoboCop the series is uh, made by Canadian Canada's rather Sky Vision Entertainment. They give Orion Pictures 500G to get just all of their TV licensing rights because, by the way, Orion like goes under. <laughs> under, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot to mention for RoboCop three that um d- the release was shelved for a year because Orion Pictures was going through bankruptcy so that's that's just an indicator of where like where they were at even when making RoboCop like they were failing while they were making a failing film 
so anyways, they yeah, they get 500 grand from Canada and their Sky Vision Entertainment Network um, and get the rights. And so this comes out months after the failed RoboCop 3. Not really a great great thing to come off the heels of. And they ended up adapting a discarded script for RoboCop 2 written by Newmeyer and Michael Miner called Corporate Wars. And that's what they used for the pilot. It ran for 22 episodes with no re- renewal because it was way too expensive to make. And it leaned more, again, towards the kids' market. The station's unofficial mascot was Gadget, an adopted daughter of station agent Sergeant Parks. So, again, getting very cute, kid sidekick, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, the Auto 9 could now fire non-lethal rounds. Isn't yes, that great? Yes, exactly, right? So, it's all in that direction, which, again, is just completely uh, anti to what made it great in the first place. So, then you lastly have Robocop Prime Directives, another Canadian miniseries, which was released in 2001, created by Fireworks Entertainment, and they made a lot of schlock. You should really look them up. It's four feature-length episodes taking place 10 years after the last RoboCop movie in a reality where Delta City was actually built. And it revolves around Alex Murphy's former partner, John T. Cable, getting his own cyborg treatment and teaming up eventually with RoboCop as they try to take down evil biotech scientist Dr. David K. Dick. I don't know anything about that. It doesn't look great. Now, you come up to modern day, all these reboots happening. Mm -hmm. All these superhero movies, all the rage. It's the year 2014. Actually, no, it's the year 2008. Uh, let's go even further back. And at first, you know, there's talk about RoboCop reboot, right? People are like, what? Should, should we do it? We need more money. Should we do it? <laughs> um, and at first, you've got Darren Aronofsky Ooh. tapped to Darren, right? Requiem for a Dream. Black I wanna, Swan. Black Pie. Swan. I was going to say Mother, but a lot of people don't like Mother, <laughs> even though I liked Mother. But still, you know, Christ Parable. He's mm. got it. He knows how to do it. He ends up getting tapped to direct. He brings in David Self, who wrote, uh, co-wrote on uh, Road to Perdition, or wrote it. Maybe it was just him. He He's brought in to co-write the script. It is set in present-day L.A., 20 years after the RoboCop program was terminated and it being reinstated. Uh, it was set to be a hard R remake and death not shot in 3D. He's like, everyone's making 3D movies. I Fuck that. I hate 3D movies. I'm not shooting in 3D. And guess what? Because of all of those things... <laughs> He ends up getting dropped immediately like a bad habit because it's like everything that the studio doesn't want. (laughs) Hard R remake, not shot in 3D, probably really cool and interesting. So our concept is we want easy money. And he's like, hear me out. What about difficult art? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like Aronofsky has had this happen to him like uh, for eight different franchises over the years where it's exactly this story. So he ends up getting replaced with Jose Padilla, who doesn't even read Aronofsky's script. He tosses it in the garbage. He um, ends up, uh, he, he previously got success with his Brazilian crime films, Elite Squad and Elite Squad Enemy Within. He knows how to do that crime shit. He ends up bringing in Swedish actor Joel Kinnaman, known for playing Detective Stephen Holder on AMC's The Killing and Governor Will Conway in House of Cards. He even kind of looks like Weller a little bit. He's He's kind of got the look. He's got that good chin. Got that good chin. He's really like Hitler would love him. You know <laughs> what I mean? He's got that, that beautiful blonde hair, those blue eyes. Uh, and um, the, you know, they redesigned the whole suit. It gets a ton of criticism. One of the lines I liked was, it looks more like Kevlar body armor than Detroit steel. Just so true. It just feels like it totally loses sight, even within the suit, inherent, totally losing sight of what the original movie was. The number one design mistake that totally uh, just destroys whatever visual appeal 
uh, the RoboCop visor, like armor look had is human hands. Yeah. Those weird fleshy pink hands just jutting out of the ends Ugh. of the arms, which makes no sense. Does that mean they like kept like just the hands? <laughs> it's very dumb. <laughs> very gross. Um, so and uh, he's not fighting criminals throughout the whole movie because the whole the entire plot revolves around the idea that like uh, OCP has successfully done drone warfare and drone uh, police work in everywhere but America. And RoboCop was uh, their like kind of a attempt to appeal to the American like uh, law enforcement uh-huh. uh, populace that like no this is a person with some robot bits attached but really OCP was controlling him like a robot and it's a PG thirteen movie where it's just. Yeah. Not RoboCop Again, with his gross human hands not, shooting CGI robots it's and not bloodless. What the thing is about? It's not the thing. Get the thing back. E- even Bring on top of that, it's full of like all these weird things where it's like, that's right. There's drones in Iran, and like it's supposed to sound like yeah. it's prescient. Yeah. But the movie is saying nothing about the world around them. So, so yeah, saying something about the world around them. Ultra gore comedy. Mm-hmm. Great special effects, practical special effects, right? These yeah. are these are staples, right? Mm-hmm. And also, I will say this: I think I get it. It's clearly like can be a children's toy, but isn't there also something to that movie that you're not allowed to watch? That it has like this real that as a kid looks really cool that you really want to watch as soon as you can sneak a watch of it or like you know get old enough to watch it and you're still gonna get the toy and you're it's almost like the unseen monster like because you're like I don't know what this is I'm not allowed to see it and and all the adults are going out and enjoying it and there's something about franchises like and that you, no but you do get to see it on the one night you're at a sleepover yeah. at your one friend's house and their parents aren't home and their cool older brother is like right? yo you want to watch Robocop right <laughs> I think that there is something it's marketable the death about of the home that video market yeah it is it's the death of home video market and it, it's it's that because that was you know those franchises still can work too i get it you're probably going to sell a lot more toys if it's specific if it's a fucking pg rated or even pg 13 rated thing that kids can go see but man there's something about those dirty <laughs> movies that look like they're for you but they're not for you yet that that are great and 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 um people flock to you know and i i uh yeah I, you just I think it is one of those where, like, you can't have what RoboCop has without these these little things in the mix. And one of the most important ones to me is, like, comical ultraviolence is, is just fundamental to this franchise. You need the squibs. You need yeah. the sludge. You need the tits. The dick's getting shot off. The dirty old man. <laughs> te- just the, the ultra. It's nothing is funnier to me than, like, the ultra dystopian Detroit. It is so fun. Like Detroit being a source of just horrible bullshit. One is- of my favorite scenes is when the cops go on strike and Boddicker's like guys get 50 caliber railgun explodey rifles. Yes. And, and they're, they're just blowing up shit on the street. Blowing casually. shit up. <laughs> I love that shit. You know, it's kind of the same thing as like, like the enemies, uh, the, like the in, in uh, the first ever um, police academy, mm-hmm. you know, those just way over the top dirty villains that you got so much in like 80s and 90s comedies. I want those back and we we have a totally great thing we could bring them back with. Um, and I will say this, though. We may get it back, Jake. You're saying that RoboCop might return? I'm saying that in January of 2018, Ed Newmeyer announces that he is writing a direct sequel to the original film that would ignore both sequels and the remake. Newmeyer says, 
We're not supposed to say much. There's been a bunch of other RoboCop movies, and there was recently a remake, and I would say this would be kind of going back to the old RoboCop we all love, and starting there and going forward. So it's a continuation, really, of the first movie, in my mind. So it's a little bit more of the old school thing. Now, that's like, okay, cool, he's writing a new script. He's much older. We don't know if he still has it, yada, yada, yada. Well, One thing I will say, though, that is super- I, I uh, read an interview with Michael Minor because they reunited for yes. this- and in the script they submitted, uh, one of the key plot points is in this post-apocalyptic world, people are doing pirate cyborg enhancements like bioorganic nice. home in home cyborging. Uh, and their main villain uh, was a centaur-like monster in a football helmet they called the Mule. That's incredible. Uh, I I will say, too, in July of 2018, it was confirmed that RoboCop Returns, which is the name, is in development with Neil Blomkamp Hell set to direct. Yes. And what a perfect fucking person who made District 9 and Elysium and Chappie totally gets that super intense but also comical sci-fi shit. Like, he nails it. He is, the I feel like, doing the modern-day version of what RoboCop is all about. And apparently, he wants to make a movie in the style of Verhoeven if he were to have directed the sequel way back when. He, and that is the perfect thing he could say. Mm-hmm. So maybe... Without all this said about how they ruined the franchise, blah, 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 blah. I say this as someone who's rooting for RoboCop RoboCop. and Blomkamp because that guy is way overdue for a win. Yeah, he needs a win. Chappie was kind of crappy, right? (laughs) So I'd like to finish out. Gene Shalit. You're welcome. So I'd like to finish out uh, with a great quote from Newmeyer that really sums up what he's trying to say about corporate America and the movie Mm -hmm. and um, uh, just as a whole. It was really a commentary on the idea that if a corporation makes something, they want to control it. If I go to work for a corporation, they can look at everything I do on my cell phone. They want to own me to the extent that they want to prevent me from being harmful to them. Corporations are made up of people. They're self-protective. They want to make sure you're not going to hurt them. So therefore, they're going to insist on legal clauses, non-disclosure agreements, or in, if you happen to be a cyborg, they're going to put a little thing in that says, you can't function in a way that would work against the company. I think that's great. Can I throw in one more little factoid? Please. Uh, if you pay attention during RoboCop 1, you'll notice that all of the kind of ancillary cop characters are named after serial killers, and all the ancillary scientist characters are named after presidents. No shit. Yeah. Fantastic. Weird. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for our RoboCop episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope we did justice to the whole damn thing. Uh, You can, uh, if you want, support us further. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do, just for five bucks a month, we do bonus content every single week. And also, uh, if you want to check me out further, check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. I'm doing shit all the time. They're mostly Monday and Friday night are my big nights, but I'm doing stuff rando like all the time jake you can follow me on twitter at best jake young and uh if you want to hear my uh, screaming voice go to dropout.tv and uh watch cartoon hell uh an animated uh illustrated journey uh where we try and make the worst cartoons ever season two just premiered hell we yeah got special guests like uh pro zd and uh the mcelroy <laughs> brothers and yeah. uh Adam Conover and Lisa Hanawalt, who just uh, is about to unveil uh, Tuca and Birdie on Netflix. So uh, we got, we got, it's 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 chaotic, it's loud, and we draw nipples on things. All right, and always remember, guys, keep on whizzing, never stop bruising, creep. <laughs>
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.